So this glorious text, as, as Tom read and, and said to us, is a few better texts that I could preach today, to be honest, in the wake of this most controversial election of, of many of our lives, uh, it's a re- which was a real Hobson's choice, if I'm honest, this election. Almost everyone is either angry or, or distraught or confused or some are elated, and, and we probably have all of that here. And so it's even more germane for us where Paul talks about not only setting our minds on what is above and not on the tumult that is going on here, which is not our ultimate reality, but also being very, very, very different and in the world's eyes, having every reason to be divided and divisive among one another. Rather, he says, you are all one in Christ. Um, And you heard some of that from Chris, who helped lead us in worship this morning, and that is so true. He is here. I am here. We are here, not because we're a club or or share social affinities, but because of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, and the fact that he is reigning now and that he will return. That's our reality. So in the light of this crazy week of elections, um, we need to keep some things in mind, and Paul reminds them of us here. What he's done so far, essentially, to oversimplify is in the first half of the four-chapter book of Colossians, Colossians 1 and 2, he's basically said over and over again, he's beating the drum of, look at Jesus Christ. God become a man, fullness of deity, not fullness of divinity, not somewhat divine, fullness of the Godhead in flesh, fully God, fully man, represented us in his life, in his death, absorbed the wrath of God for us, set us free who trust in him, and, not, and didn't stop there, but rose from the grave, conquering death and sin as proof that his payment was enough for us, and kept going to the heavenlies where he is seated now. And let me tell you, I don't think enough about that last part. The ascension, we kind of think, I think we sometimes think, okay, Christ died, he rose, he's coming again. Wait a minute, what about right now? What's he doing now? It's sort of like the, uh, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed that says, um, uh, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, died, died and buried, suffered, uh, died and buried. So, so it's like, okay, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, wait, was there nothing in between? You know? Um, it's, I believe the Apostles' Creed is a wonderful creed. I'm just saying, it's that sort of idea, this huge lacuna, you know, um, of rose from the dead, and then we kind of think, or I tend to think, and he's coming again. What is he doing now? He ascended. He kept going. His resurrection was a sign that he was victorious over all that he paid for, and we in him. And now that he kept going all the way to the nerve center of the cosmos, the control center, he pulls the levers. That's our reality, and we are with him. No matter what the election is causing, no matter what the Middle East looks like, as the Assyrians know so much better than we, this is not our reality. Um, he is seated, what, and we'll talk about this, he is seated in power. That's what that means, with all power. And he is coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to call those who have trusted in him, in him to himself. All knees will bow, and he will make all things new. Paul says, set your mind. Come on, give me some callbacks. Give me some callbacks. I used to preach at a half-black church, and I got used to him, and then I went to Scotland. That was trouble. I was like, y'all alive? Anybody? I mean, the home of Presbyterianism, I understood what frozen chosen meant on a whole new level. Man. Okay, so Paul says in this section, that's what's happened. Look who Christ is. Look who you are in Christ. Now, therefore, do this. Live this way. You ought to be holy. Your lives ought to look very different. In a sense, I could sum up this entire text by saying, put off the stuff that gnaws at you in your flesh. It's dead. 
Remember who you are in Christ. Put on, therefore, who Christ is. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love, which binds all things. Okay? Um, so it's not a sort of just, just muscle up. That's not it at all. In light of who you are in Christ and what, who he is now and what he's doing, has done, and what he's going to come do again. Live this way. Um, and look the context into which Paul says this. He wrote this letter into something we can resonate with right now in this sort of mini tumult for us. And I can say mini because against the backdrop of his Roman world, it was nothing. He wrote this letter to the Colossians, the church in, Coloss- in Colossae, between 60 and 62 AD during Nero's reign. And Nero, even if you don't know anything about the Roman Empire, you probably know that name at least. It probably resonates, rings some bells. He was, uh, his rule is often associated with tyranny and extravagance. He was one of the worst by any measure, even a pagan measure, emperors. Uh, he's known for many executions, including that of his mother, Yauza, and the probable murder by poison of his stepbrother, Britannicus. Nero is rumored to have captured Christians dipped in oil and set on fire in his garden for sources of light uh, for his parties. This, this is based on writings by Suetonius uh, and Tacitus and others. But look at the note of conquest in the midst of this election cycle, if you want to call that, setting. This, this political scene of Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't fix his mind on and his eyes on, nor does he enjoin us to on what, on what this earthly scene is. He doesn't disregard it. He tells us in other places to be subject to governing authorities, this and that and the other. It's not irrelevant, but it's not the ultimate, it's not the ultimate reality, and it should not be for us. Um, and that's not to say, let me just say this briefly, that we should not be thoughtful and distraught, perhaps, or thankful, depending on what side you're on with the election, and coming together as different members in this one body of Christ and having real conversations. That does not, I am not saying that, but what I am saying is look at Paul's word here. Look at Paul's word here. Um, it's a command to set our minds on things above. So, um, look at the note of conquest that he sounds. A little about politics and other letters, nothing of that here. A ton about Christ's coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his session, and his imminent return. This is what should drive us as a people of God. And as a corollary of, a corollary of Christ's reign and ours, look at his focus, Paul's focus. It's holy living. It's not a political uh, focus. Uh, there are those out there who are committing infanticide, murder, killing Christians, euthanasia, all of which was very commonplace in the Roman world. No. But look at you. Concern yourself with yourself, your body, the body that Christ has called you to be. Live holy. Live holy. So in light of who you are, live this way. That's really what this passage that Tom read is about. And remember again, we know that every Sunday, as we sit under the authority, not of me, of God's word, uh, which is why that if I say something that's out of step with God's word, I ought to be challenged by you in love, right? I'm not the authority. God's word, God himself, and his word through us by the power of his Holy Spirit, as we receive it by faith, that is, that is our authority. Um, but remember that two weeks ago, we were in this ser- Colossian series, and I sidestepped with no view of today at all, but just in thinking obedience to what God was calling me to, and called an audible, and preached John 3 and 4, 
So that set us back a week. So it just so happens that in his province, we have in this crazy election week where all sorts of things are going on. And we're partly in turmoil, not only as a church, but as a country. Um, he has this word for us. Set your mind not on earthly things, but on things above. So set your mind on things above, verses 1 through 4. Your life is not here, Paul says, but it's above where Christ is. Now, Christ, being God, is everywhere. God is omnipresent. But Christ, the man, the God-man, with a body, and he will always have a body. He will always have the holes in his hands. He will, if he, for one second, stopped being a man, he would stop representing us, and bye-bye we would go, down, down, to what we deserve. No, he is ever interceding for us as the God-man, as our representative, our step-in between us and God. He is our hope, and he is the one reigning, and we with him now. Um, but that's where he is, seated in heaven. So that's our reality, because we have died to our old selves, and our life is just riveted to one place, him. It's not here. It's no longer here. So let's look at that one, verses 1 through 4 briefly. He was raised, like I've been saying, not only from the grave, but he kept going After, with a 40-day interval where he made himself known and showed himself and instructed a few disciples. And then he kept going to the seat of power as if to say, again, I have conquered all things and you in me as I represent you. He is both seated, Paul says, and at the right hand of God the Father. So seated, he's in session that's a picture of the fact when you come into um, a court, the judge is seated. When he takes his seat, if he's not seated, that means, okay, it's power time. Whatever I say goes. When you come into the, the, uh, the court of a king and he is seated on his throne, it means, okay, it's business time. I'm in a seat of power. I'm not standing up, moving side to side, unsure of myself. The, what my, my word is law. <clears throat> the fact that Christ is in session, seated, means he's, no, he's finished the work. He's done everything necessary for your salvation. And not only for your salvation, but for the rolling out of the completion of all things to make things ready for his return. He's going to make all things new. He's going to end evil and wickedness in us and in this world. He's going to finish it. He's going to vanquish all opposition. But for now, the time is short for us to be preaching the good news of the gospel, for people to flee to him because he is the only way to avoid the wrath of God. And Paul says, what, in somewhere in this text, that um, the wrath of God is, after one of these litanies of sin, he says the wrath of God is coming against such things. In other words, flee to Christ now. He is your only hope. So he's both seated, having finished uh, the work of our salvation, while the Father is now making of his enemies a footstool for his feet, even through bloodshed and through spiritual opposition he's conquered all things and he's at the right hand of the father which means he shares the throne with God as the son of God and as God himself the right hand of power he has all power and he is seated he's not flustered by what's going on he cares deeply he came for that reason to show us but he's conquered those things and we are seated with him no matter what's going on in our lives no matter how out of balance the checkbook is no matter how in the red we are no matter how terrible the job is going no matter how off the rails our kids are, no matter how the election has gone, no matter who's the president-elect or who could have been or who will be in the future, okay? Not irrelevant, but not the ultimate reality. That's what Paul's saying. Your life is dead. You have died. Um, your new life 
in heaven is hidden with God in Christ. In other words, nobody can touch it. Nobody can, we work all of our lives, even as Christians, just like the world, unfortunately, and I'm guilty of this, to shore up security for ourselves. I, on Wednesday, uh, Tom was talking about the speaker on Wednesday um, that goes over to Syria a lot, and he said, you know, our twin idols in America are comfort and security, and that is so true. And I'm guilty of just trying to do everything I can to shore up what I see around me to secure my little short life. But Paul blasts that apart. He decimates it, and he says, don't live that way. Your life is secure already. Therefore, you can just stop trying to secure everything here and pick up your cross and follow Christ. Okay? Everything down here, you're dead to. Live sending things forward, knowing that you're secure. You don't have to try to grasp and grab and collect your little mounds and fill your barn. Stop living that way. And when you do, you will find peace and in the midst of chaos, and a, war, a watching world will take notice of a people like that. Of that, I assure you. And people will come to Christ. Of that, I assure you. May it be with us. May it be with us. So in this next section, after this, set your minds on things that are above. What does Paul get down into the business of? And this is, this is the last, really, section of this text. He gets down to the business of be what you are, okay? Christ has secured you. Here's who you are in Christ. Um, sometimes I, and therefore live that way. Sometimes I, I, I get on a knee with my son, Seth. I have one son and two daughters that are younger than he. And he's six. And he's just getting old enough to where he can, I think I can do stuff like this with him, but if I'm going away for the day, and I know it's going to be a hard day for Rob, and there's a lot going on, or if I'm going away for the weekend or for a trip, I'll get on a knee with him. I'll look him in the eye, and I'll say, Seth, remember who you are. You're an ince. And remember whose you are. You're mine. And act like it. Can you be the man of the house for me? Yeah, buddy. And he knows that if he goes out into the world, he represents me when he does, and, and us and our family. And who, that's who he is. And even if he deviates, it doesn't change who he is, but he's acting out of line with who he is. It's not going to change my love for him. So it is with God. You're not going to lose your salvation if you sin or start embracing anger and lust instead of uh, humility and meekness and kindness and the love that Christ is and pours out on us and draws us into. But you're not acting like you are. That's what Paul's saying. Okay? So this, the rest of it is be what you are. Live consistent with who you are, this new creation in Christ. So it's not just a, something I work up to. It's a transaction that happens. Christ makes me new through his work, in his life, in his person. And I'm secure in him. He is coming again to make all things new. That is it for us. Therefore, our lives should look different. Abide in that reality. Set your mind in that reality by being in the word, by reminding each other of that in Christian fellowship together, by preaching the gospel, as Tom was saying, to people that are dying. You want an amazing reminder? Do you want to recapture the wonder of the gospel? I do. I've been praying for that recently. It's been flatlining some in my life. Lord, that is horrible. It is such a wonderful, scandalous, ridiculous gospel that you became a man and died on a cross for me, and all of a sudden that becomes normal, and I'm kind of... Uh. And so, do you want to recapture the wonder of that? I, I, I dare say you could do few things more better for that 
than to stoke the flames of the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ than to go, uh, this is not a shameless plug, but to go on this prestige learning institute outreach thing where there's a hayride and a Christmas tree farm with 200 Afghan refugees, who most of whom are Muslim probably, and to share, to have it come out of your lips that, yeah, guess what? Good news. I know it's going to sound crazy, but God actually became a man, a baby. A baby. He was born poor in a barn, and he grew up, and he died on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for you. That, John tells us in his prologue, is the heart of a father for you. That's how much God loves you. What? Imagine hearing that from, for the first time through Muslim ears. God became a man. That is scandalous. He was born a poor child and was crucified. His choice, his plan of power and redemption. All of a sudden, as you are apologizing for the faith, as you're defending the faith, as you are speaking the peace of the gospel to people, especially people like that that haven't heard it, it sounds crazy. Wonderfully crazy. And it reminds you of what you believe and the wonder of it all. So I would encourage you, if you want to recapture the wonder for no other reason, just come. Just sign up in the back at the end of the gathering. Come on that hayride and on that chance to love these beautiful people that God has made and wants to win for himself. Um, okay. That wasn't shameless, was it? That wasn't a shameless plug. It was a plug. Definitely wasn't in the notes. Um, okay. So there are some litanies here that we need to at least touch on. Be who you are. You are loved, so become lovely by working out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first list in verse 5, if I could just condense, and I need to, and that's fine, but the first list of sins in verse 5, there's another list in verse 8 of sins, is a litany of really, um, it both, both lists of sins that Paul says, put these things off. He doesn't say, you're not doing those things anymore, I know. He doesn't say that. He says, put them off. Take effort to put off what you have the ability to do now that you're a new creation in Christ. It takes effort. It takes discipline. It takes accountability. It takes being in God's word, being in prayer, striving with all the power that he works in me wonderfully through what Christ has already done in that relational connection. Okay? But both lists move from the obvious and the conspicuous. If you look at verse 5, for instance, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, that's obvious. When I'm sexually immoral, there's at least one other person that knows that, that can see that, okay? Impurity, passion. Notice how it goes from the obvious to the less obvious, from the seen to the unseen. Evil desire, who can see my desire? Covetousness, who can see my covetousness? But every time I walk in the sins, largely this first litany is basically sins of, certainly of the flesh, but of uh, concupiscence, of, 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 of passion, of sexual desire, um, when I walk in those things, they lead to a covetousness. I want that. I'm craving that thing which I ought not to have, which might be somebody else's, or maybe I just want way too much of it. So you can see how that's there. Um, but God cares, and in the, in the second list, same thing. It moves from the obvious to the less obvious, from the seen to the unseen. God cares about our heart, cares about what's inside, and he has provided through Christ, Christ's power to excoriate. I use that word purposely. Look it up later. It has to do with the heart, to excoriate, to remove, to purge, not just our behavior externally, but our hearts. He's about changing us from the inside out. He wants to form Christ fully in us, and he will if we are his. 
So that's, that's the first list. Um, the second list is really, if the first list is kind of sexual, the second list is anger associated. So look at the second list in verse 8. He says, also put away, you must put away, it's not a suggestion, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander. We get to some mouth sins and obscene talk from your mouth. If I have this in the heart, it always bubbles out and comes out in my mouth. Jesus said, what, from the depth of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why my language is such a litmus test for where my heart is. Let's pay attention to it more. But Paul says, put that stuff away. Not, you don't, you're not doing this, I know. Or stop it. He kind of does say stop it. He says, put it away. Christ is crucified. It's dead. Your reality is in heaven. Put on, in verse 12 and following, something else. Put on Christ himself. These virtues that come from him. Um, so if the, if the first list in verse 5 is sexual, largely, the second list is ang- really sort of touches on anger um, and ends with sins of the mouth. Man, if I, can, if I can eliminate, if I can put away sins of, uh, sexual sins and desires, covetousness, wanting what's not mine, um, and, which is idolatry, worship of anything other than God, and then anger and everything associated with that, and anger comes from pride, oftentimes, unless it's righteous, but I would, okay, so anger comes with pride, and then if I can get rid of that, and then all the stuff that spews out of my mouth because of that, those two lists are pretty comprehensive. If I can get rid of those things, I can put those things off. They're not exhaustive, but it's a pretty good list. And, it, um, and I just want to say, as, a, as an aside, with regard to, with, sorry, with regard to, in verse 8, that litany, um, anger, wrath, malice, righteous anger, a lot of times I give myself a pass I'm like, man, I'm righteously angry, angry right now. And so I, it's a pass. Don't do that. I just want to say to you, you might be righteously angry, but there's a good chance you're not. Or there's a good chance that it's alloyed. Your righteous anger is alloyed with some sinful things and motives. And there's probably some pride there. Might not be. There are times when we are just righteously angry, and that's a virtue. That's a virtue. Christ was. But really, so often, I give myself a pass when... Like this week, um, I felt righteously angry. And I was operating more out of anger than out of this list that we're about to get to in verse 12, which is put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and love. I was operating in verse 8. I was not putting off. I was walking in my, the deadness of my flesh. But a friend came to me in verse, the virtues of verse 12, meekness, humility, and we had a hard conversation. And, and he's in this church. And can I tell you, it was one of the richest conversations I've had. And that I, I'm learning how to mourn with those who mourn right now in a new way. And that I am getting older, as a character in C.S. Lewis's Paralandra says. I'm getting older. I'm maturing. I'm seeing Christ more fully formed in me as I couple myself to this brother who thinks differently than I do and listens. And I'm, I'm instructed by him about putting on Christ because I was acting in anger. And so I thank God for him, and I thank God for this body that gives me that opportunity. And I pray for more of that. We need each other. We who are different from each other, we need each other. We need to be submitted to one another and under Christ as our head. So that's that. And let's just look briefly at the, the list in verse 12. So let's pause. Before we do that, I want you to stay with me in verse 11 for just a second. Look at verse 11. It's this wonderful verse that is so on point for us today in this country, in this body. 
Paul says, put, put off that new stuff, that old stuff, sorry, heresy. Put off that old stuff. Having put on the new self, verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. How are we renewed in knowledge if we're not supping and feasting on the very word of Christ? If we're supping and feasting more on what we get on our iPhones and what's coming in, the barrage of the avalanche. Can I think of any more you know, nouns to describe how harried and torn and disparate our thoughts are and how we're going in a million different directions through the media that is bombarding us? How else are we to be renewed in knowledge if we are not supping and feasting and meditating and marinating on the word of God? Like the blessed man in Psalm 1, day and night, like a tree sinking its roots into the ground by that stream of water, sucking out that marrow, sucking out that water of life that is the very word of God, that it is to us Jesus Christ that takes us to him by faith. Can we be that kind of people together? Can we encourage each other to be that kind of people more? But in verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He could not have picked more disparate groups. That's the whole point. He picks antipodes. He picks polar opposites in every category. The Greek was to the Jew unwashed, pagan, and unclean. The Jew to the Greek was unsophisticated. Uh, and then landing on barbarian, Scythian. A Scythian was like the barbarian of barbarians. The closest thing I can think to is basically Isis. So let me find um, what I've said about the Scythians. Okay, the Scythians were a people who lived along the northern coast of the Black Sea. To the Greeks, the Scythians were a violent, uneducated, uncivilized, and altogether inferior people. One commentator writes, since the Scythian invasion of the Fertile Crescent toward the end of the 7th century BC, Scythian had been a byword for uncultured barbarism. Paul levels such discrimination. He just levels it. He raises it to the ground. And what does he say? He says, there's not a single, single thing that divides you now. Nothing now divides you. None of that applies anymore because you are a new creation in Christ. One body through his single headship. That's what defines you. Do we still bring our differences? Yes, we're not identified by them anymore. We don't hide them, though. We, we together with our differences and our panoply of diversity, make the body of Christ richer and work on each other. As I just said, my friend and I did, much to his credit, this, this week. So radical what Paul is saying. May we be as a church different as we are, characterized by the church in Tertullian's time, a church father. And people said, they looked at the church, the early church, and they said, how they love one another. And that's what Paul says here. Is he says in verse 14, he says, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on, Paul says, um, put on, Paul says, as God's chosen ones. He reminds us before he gets into, he does everything he can to make sure that we remember before he says, live this way and put on these virtues, that it's not like a, a pagan Roman sort of buck up and do these things and be disciplined and through your own strength. He reminds us once again, even though he's already done that for two straight chapters, here's what Christ has done. You're alive in him, not in yourself. He's crucified your old desires and your old man. Live in him. It's all a gift. He says it again. He can't help himself. As God's chosen ones, he's reminding you, God has chosen you through no good of your own. That's your identity. You're loved. There's nothing Seth can do to not be my son. 
There's nothing you can do to be, not to be God's son or daughter after you've come to Christ. And if you come to Christ now in a miserable state of your sin and, and rejection of God, if you come to Christ now, he will take you as his own if you trust in him and him alone and not yourself. And he will make you his, and you, he will never, ever abandon or deny you. None shall, sna- shall snatch them out of my hand. None, not even you, can snatch yourself out of God's hand. He has chosen you. You are wholly set apart for him for a distinct purpose of becoming like his son Jesus and glorifying his son Jesus and knowing him and satisfying relationship forever. And you are beloved, Paul says. Okay? You are called by God. You are holy and you are loved through no good of your own. And you are becoming lovely as you sit in that love, in that relationship with God, with him one-on-one and together. This list, I'll walk briefly, briefly through this list, and then we'll, we'll close with a few of these closing verses. We'll, we'll jump on to Thanksgiving and, be, and then be done. But just to, to touch on a few of these things in this list, I dare not pass over it completely in verse 12 and 13, that Paul says, now that you've put these things off in light of who you are in Christ, setting your minds on what's above, put on these things, right? Compassionate hearts. Literally, that word means bowels of compassion, bowels down here. Guts guts of compassion for one another and for those that are different from you, for those that are less fortunate than you and that hate you. It's the, it's the emotion most described, most attributed to Jesus Christ in the Gospels. He felt compassion. His guts were moved when he saw the crowd wandering like sheep without a shepherd. Um, when he saw a woman with one son who was her social security and her only comfort in this life, and she was leading him out on a funeral bier out of the city to bury him and to bury all of her hopes in this life, he, he, was, he was moved in his guts. He felt compassion for that woman. That is what Paul is saying you should put on. Where does it come from? Do we just work it up through our elbow grease? Heck no. It comes from Christ, from putting on Jesus Christ. It comes straight from him in his heart. Meekness, um, it's based, it's the word prautes in, in, Greek, in Greek, and it's basically like something very powerful, but under great control. Like, like a big, beautiful boat with a rudder that just moves it, or a big, powerful car with a huge engine that has wonderful control, like a Porsche 911 turbo, okay? You just, you just tilt the wheel a little, and it hugs that road, you know, such a pleasure to drive. Um, Okay, like a horse, a very powerful stallion, so much power between your legs, but what? It chooses to have, let's say, a bridle and a bit in its mouth to be directed. That is the picture of meekness. Um, Numbers 12.3 uses that word of Moses. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Moses was a powerful man. He was so powerful. He met with God face to face. He directed the affairs of an entire nation, but he was the most meek, gentle, humble man on the face of the earth. Jesus, whom Moses pictured, even more so. The ultimate picture of power under great control. Father, what do you want me to do? Lay your life down. I'm there. Where does it come from then? It's a miracle. It comes from Christ by faith in what he's done and who he is, abiding in him. That's it. That is it. And then, um, lastly, humility, not to hit the whole list, but humility, we can't skip this. It's the soil out of which all of the virtues grow. 
Uh, A.W. Tozer said that humility is as scarce as an albino robin. You ever seen an albino robin? I haven't. And you probably haven't seen humility either. It's very rare. Whenever you see it, go after that person and sit under them. You want it to rub off on you. Jesus Christ was the most humble, perfectly humble man on the planet. And he remains so because God is humble. He's so humble that he came down and became poor and went to a cross to save us. Um, Chris mentioned this verse in his prayer, I think, but Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk, what, humbly with your God. How do we get humility? How did Elijah in 1 Kings 18 get courage to stand before uh, wicked King Ahab and tell him, you have done what is wrong? Because he said, I I stand before the living God. The only way to get humility is to stand before God, to walk with God, and to know that is my place. And once we see God for who he is, it's the only thing that brings us true humility. Once we see what God has done for us in Christ, it, it imbues to us a humility. We can just lay down. Our rights are secured in heaven. We are deeply loved. I don't have any rights anymore. Walk all over me. Look at me as just a, a something to, um, just a, a coat to be laid down and trod on, if that will help you, if that will get you to God, if that will bless you. Humility. It's, it wasn't even considered in the list of ancient virtues. Courage, fortitude, temperance, these things were. This was actually uh, sometimes looked at as a negative thing, but it comes from Christ who completely turned the tables over on the world when he showed us what true love looks like. Humility, laying your life down and going and being crucified for it. So that's that list. It's a wonderful list. We're encouraged by Paul. We're commanded by Paul to put it on if we are in Christ. And if we're not in Christ, we can't do it. And when we realize that we can't do it and we're not in Christ, that's the point at which we say, Jesus Christ, be my Savior. Come into my life and make me this way. Make me like you are. Um, Paul says, I'll just read it, and then I'm out. Um, Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ, not an emptiness, but a fullness of life that comes often through laying our lives down. Let the peace of Christ, which will remake the world, rule in your hearts. Don't let animosity or anger or bitterness or pride or lust, but the peace of Christ, the shalom of Christ. Let it rule, and it will trickle out into the world we are inhabiting, friends, in our workplaces, into our families, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. And I'll finish with that. Be thankful. Just like we encountered two weeks or last week when I preached, he says, abound in thanksgiving, friends. Abound in thanksgiving because of who you are in Christ. Thanksgiving is, should be the tenor of our lives. It's the barometer by, that measures the temperature of our souls. Are we characterized as a people? Are you characterized as a person by someone who's constantly just giving thanks? Your lips are just uttering thanks constantly? Or, kind of more like me, are you constantly kind of grumbling, complaining, finding out what's wrong with things? That says something about my heart. That's a check engine light. We ought to be a people in light of who God is and what he's done for us that are thankful. No matter what our situation, thankful, thankful. It ought to come from, what it comes from is a new heart. It can only come from a miracle, something that Christ has given to us. Paul David Tripp, um, he, he held a water bottle up uh, in a video that I saw, and it was, a marriage, it was a marriage video that Robin and I were watching over when we lived over in Europe. And he had a water bottle, and he shook it just a teeny bit. It was filled to the top, and he shook it like that. He 
just a little bit, and of course water kind of splashed out. And he said, why did the water splash out? It's like, okay, you think I'm an idiot? Of course. So it was an easy question, right? Well, he, about, he was about to hook me. Hey, it's because it was full of water. He said, well, that's your heart when anger comes out, or bitterness, or complaining, or jealousy. And you're, but, but you blame it on, God, my life's just crazy right now, all these pressures. He's like, the pressure is you're being shaken, but what's coming out is what's in you, what you're full of. When we are shaken, when we're shaken, may what comes out be gratitude. And if that happens, it's a miracle every time because that is Christ in you. You are seated in the heavenlies. That's your reality. Okay? May it change the way that we live and think and breathe and love one another, friends, and love this aching, lost world. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word made flesh, your son Jesus Christ, who showed us these things because he is these things and who offered all of himself to us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Lord. We find we find these things in Christ. I pray that you would help us to, that you would help us to fix our eyes on him, not on this tumult that's going on down here, while at the same time not neglecting it, but that our reality, we would be reminded, our reality is hidden with you, guaranteed and secured. Would that change us? Would you change us? I pray it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.